Golden Dog, and welcome everyone to the Icelandic Roots podcast. For this episode, I have connected with Julie Summers and Utley Halderson, who are the co-project managers for the Snorri programs. This is part one of our conversation, and we start off by discussing how Julie and Utley got involved with the Snorri program, and then we delve deep into the Icelandic language. Julie has studied Icelandic, and Utley is a native Icelandic speaker, and our conversation provides what I think is some interesting perspectives on the language and the future of Icelandic. But to start out our conversation, we get right into genealogy and utilizing the Icelandic Roots database, figure out how Utley and Julie are related. I hope you enjoy and stay tuned for part two. Julie Summers and Utley Halderson or Halderson? Halderson. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. You guys have two common ancestors. Both are seventh cousin relationships. And okay. I won't read out how you guys are, unless maybe you guys are interested. Yeah, I'm actually. Um... For the first one, you have a generation of Magnus' daughter on your side, Utley. Okay, so my mom, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then uh then, then that is through the Westford side for Julie. Right. Everything's through my mom's side, yeah. Okay. And then it goes all the way back to uh well, this is a name I've not seen before. Cecilia. Yeah, I'm looking at it too here. Cecilia? Yeah. Eric's daughter. And then an uh the other common ancestor would be uh Geesley. Nicholson, Nicholson. Oh yes. Well, weren't they? Uh, weren't they a couple? Gisla and Cecilia. Presumably, yes. Uh, yes, actually, this would check out because all the common ancestors before them are the same on both sides. Okay, so Julie and Udley, seventh cousins of each other. Why don't you both share a little bit about your history, your experiences getting involved in these organizations such as Icelandic Roots and Snorri? Atli, your name starts with A, so I think you have to start. That's how it works in school, right? <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so I kind of got involved through my uh, work at the Nordic Association. Mm. And I guess to make a long story short, uh, in 2021, I tried to start this project to um, introduce and present the Nordic folk high school system to youth in Iceland. And that project was a passion project for me. Uh, but one of the uh, first big hurdles was to acquire f- funding. And that didn't work out because I guess I was just kind of too late in the year applying for funding to do to execute a project in the summer and i was applying in spring uh but that led to me getting in touch with the nordic association who the year after invited me to join their team at the um same office as the snorri foundation uh operates from so that was last uh summer last year so i started working for them, primarily for the Nordjob, Nordic uh, Youth Work Exchange Program, but also helping out with and assisting uh, Paula, 
the former Snorri Foundation project manager run the Snorri programs that summer where I met Jack, uh, I guess the yeah 13th of June, 2022. And I remember actually when you met our Snorri group, you had brought some people who were working or doing involved in the Nordic association. So that was kind of mixing and min- mingling these different uh, yeah. communities and organizations. And we all actually played a bunch of board games and I got to know your experience as a uh, potential grandmaster at chess uh, <laughs> representing Iceland. So good times. That was fun. Um, it was really fantastic to see these two groups um, just kind of get together and creating mm-hmm. or kind of pitting Iceland as this um, uh, connector for, I guess, the Nordics and North America. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that summer I... Um, yeah, helped out a bit with some um, different kind of, I guess, after school programs for the Snorris <laughs> and with some paperwork and stuff like that. Like taking us to the pool and stuff. Exactly. And Herding the children around town. Yeah, that's kind of um, the story of how I got involved. Then um, this summer, again, I um, I worked for the Nordic Association as a summer assistant yeah during that time i guess um that's when i met julie and we met at a board meeting for the snorri foundation but before we get into that maybe we can hear from you julie how um your snorri story sure and maybe we should also just mention quickly for people who might not know that the nordic association is uh, as you said we, the Snorri Foundation, shares office space with the Nordic Association in downtown Reykjavik, and the Nordic Association is also one of our like founding members, along with the Icelandic National League of Iceland. So they are intertwined. Um, you know, they're separate organizations, but they are they are deeply intertwined as far as history goes and everything. Um, my history with the Snorri program goes back what now 11 years, I guess, to 2012 um, when I participated. And I was not one of these people who grew up in quote unquote, New Iceland, you know, um, in Manitoba, North Dakota, Minnesota, kind of the main um, Icelandic communities that you think of in North America. I grew up close to Portland, Oregon, but on the Washington side. Um, And there are also a lot of Icelanders out there, but there was no Icelandic club in my area, I never knew about the Snorri program growing up, but I um, just decided, I think it was like, it was literally New Year's Day 2012, and I kind of decided, you know, I had had an AmeriCorps position, which is kind of like a, a short-term volunteer position after college, and I wanted to do something different that year. And this is not like me. I'm not typically like a super adventurous or ambitious person, but I wanted to do something different. And somehow Iceland popped into my head, having grown up knowing I was Icelandic, um, but not having explored that at all, really. Um, And I honestly don't, I wish I knew what I searched for, but I just searched for something online. And the Snorri program website, I think, was the first thing that came up. And what I do remember is clicking through and reading like every successive page and just being like, oh my gosh, how is this real? How does this exist? This is what, this is exactly how I would choose to experience Iceland if I could. So... Long story short, I got my application in. I ended up going that year. Um, I think, you know, every person who does the program will tell you it was life-changing, and that is true 
no less for me uh, as well. Um, my homestay was in particular really um, impactful because I stayed in the West Fjords with a an older couple who really didn't speak much English at all. Um, I was the only one in my group in that situation. And so at first I, you know, I had a level of culture shock that the others didn't, but in the end, I was extremely grateful for that experience because it forced me to really try with the language to just try, fail, pick myself up again, keep going and communicate any way we could. Um, and I already had kind of an interest in languages. So that whole experience when I went home that summer, I knew I wanted to come back and learn more of the language. Um, and, you know, of course you can learn some in North America, but only in certain places and, and it's never going to be the same as being immersed in it. So yeah, uh, again, skipping ahead a bit, I ended up getting a joint grant from the Icelandic Ministry of Education, um, whatever it was called at that time, Ministry of Culture and Education, um, and the Fulbright Association in the US to study the language at the university. So I moved to Iceland in 2014. Um, the project manager of Snorri programs at the time, Austa Sol, she was integral in helping making that happen as well, writing a recommendation for me. And I ended up renting a room from her, living with her family, which really helped my language learning. And um, yeah, I ended up doing a three-year degree in Icelandic as a second language at the university, continued to do a master's in translation studies. Um, Everything was kind of year to year, just seeing what would happen if I would stay, if I would end up finishing, and one thing led to another. Uh, in the meantime, uh, in 2016, I was invited to join the board of the Snorri Foundation, which operates the Snorri programs. Um, and yeah, I, I was invited to join us, the Snorri alumni representative on the board. And so that's a position that I held until just very recently when I've transitioned to co-project manager. So. I think that's the gist of how I got involved. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, this has spurred on both of your introductions there. Many uh, questions and insights and different things that I kind of want to highlight. Um, first of all, maybe since you just finished your bit on that, Julie, talking a little bit about the language now. And I also wanted to underscore something, how you were explaining, uh, you know, these different connections that you've gotten through meeting family in Iceland, through having this connection through the Snorri program and all of these genealogy relationships, how this very much helped you to being able to study in Iceland and getting recommendations for being able to study in this sort of thing and being able to live with local people. And these different stories to me are just so powerful because without these different connections, something like moving to a totally different country and trying to live there and to study there and to work there, these things are just so out of reach unless you're making these connections that can help financially, certainly like having people to stay with and helping with having meals fed to you and stuff is really helpful financially, especially when things are not necessarily cheap in Iceland. Uh, but then also just getting that local perspective can be so helpful. So I just wanted to really underscore that and then also maybe double click on, so to speak, uh, your interest in the language. And of course, here we have a native Icelandic language speaker. So maybe Utley could chime in too about 
his perspective on the language, because of course we're doing this podcast here in English, which is technically Utley's second language then. So maybe if you guys both just want to share more perspectives on this language bit. Well, just first of all, when you said, you know, the stories about connections that kind of led me to to coming back and, and doing the language learning, it, I just wanted to tell one quick story about my my host, Papi, my host father, because um, okay. the interesting thing is this older couple I stayed with, I was actually related to her, not, I mean, of course I, I am re- related to him as well, but you know, with him, it was like <laughs> right. nine generations back mm. and she was my third or fourth cousin, okay, something wow. like that. So mm. much closer, much more tangible relationship. Um, but the, I mean, they were both so kind and so hospitable. Um, but he in particular, you know, he's, there are some of these people who were born and raised in the West Fjords. I mean, you know, they're the kind of people like, they're like, go to Reykjavik. Why? Why? We only go there if we have to, you know, they, they yeah. really, <laughs> they're, they are best thinker, uh, through and through, you know? Um, but, it took a, a little bit of time, but he really kind of, I don't know, you know, I, I got to know, to see that he was really a very gentle and very kind person. And I remember um, he was so encouraging of me and my baby Icelandic. Um, you know, I distinctly remember when she picked me up from the tiny airport in Biltutalur. It's like a 30 minute drive then to Patrikfjörður, where I stayed. And, um, and after about 10 minutes of that drive, I felt like I had exhausted my entire vocabulary. And I was like, oh my goodness, we have three more weeks <laughs> left. What are we going to talk about? But um, he was so encouraging with my Icelandic language learning. And he kept on saying, especially as the end of the homestay drew nearer, um, kind of saying like, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to come back. You're going to learn more, right? And I was starting to also say that I wanted to do that. And I remember he asked me, if I had a, a good dictionary and I said, no, you know, I I've been to the, to the bookstores in Reykjavik, they're like 10,000 kroner or something, you know, they're very expensive, very heavy. And so when I left, he put like a, I don't know, it was like a 10,000, you know, uh, krona bill in my hand and told me that this was for me to buy oh, wow. an, an or the book, a dictionary back in Reykjavik, because I had mm. to come mm. back and keep learning the language. And so when I did then eventually see, I didn't see him again until 2016, I think it was. And so then to show him, you know, I've been learning the language now for two, two and a half years or whatever, and we could have a conversation. And it was like, so such a different experience. Like that was such a surreal moment. And I think it was such a beautiful moment that stuck with me. Um, Just the fact that he believed in me, you know, and was really pushing me towards it. And sometimes that's all it takes is that one connection, one moment of connection of someone saying like, of course you can do this. Why wouldn't you be able to do this? Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic story and highlights these two dynamics that we're talking about, right? And I do find, and I say this as someone who really has the smallest of small command of the Icelandic language, but even just the few words that I do know, it does, it makes me feel more connected. And I know that it resonates with Icelanders as well, having just a little bit more than the average tourist would know in terms of the language. But I do still, I I find it very fun. I just personally, and maybe Julie, had you learned other languages before? Because maybe my 
problem is like I've, I always avoided other languages in school and I never went through anything like that. So for me to imagine learning any language, let alone one of the most difficult languages in Icelandic, it's hard for me to imagine becoming fluent in any other language. Uh, I did the required, you know, Spanish courses in high school. Um, I went to a very small high school. So in a lot of places in the U.S., you can choose between like Spanish, French, maybe German and Nowadays, especially, probably also like Chinese, Japanese, maybe. But um, my school only had Spanish, and that's fine. My my mom used to teach Spanish actually way back in the day before kids. Um, so I and also just growing up on the west coast of the U.S., that's the second language that you're by far most exposed to. Um, and I enjoyed it in school, but it was very much just like school Spanish. You know, we didn't really use it in practical circumstances. So I. When I say I had an interest in languages, I mean, I, I, I did my first bachelor's degree in English. So like I've always been interested in language in terms of like my own, you know, in English, um, writing, reading, you know, literature, et cetera. Um, but no foreign languages. It was only a few years of high school Spanish before I started really seriously learning Icelandic. And I've since then learned some German living in Germany right now, but that hasn't gone as quite as well as the Icelandic journey did. <laughs> but I do want to say too, you said one of the hardest languages in the world. And I want to correct that because this is repeated so often. And it's just, you just, you can't, you can't say that, you know, any language is the hardest in the world because it depends so much on who you are. What is your native language? What is your background, you know, what languages have you been exposed to? And like, yes, for most people, it's going to be more for most native English speakers, it's going to be more challenging to master Icelandic than to master Spanish, let's say, or Norwegian, like Norwegian has a much, much more simple grammar and such, I've been told I don't speak Norwegian. But right. yeah, it's not the hardest language in the world. People don't need to be scared off by that. It has its challenges. But it also depends so much on motivation. Yeah. No, thank you for saying that because I also don't like to, you know, promote these blanket statement things. It's like another one, too, where you'll read different things of Iceland being, you know, a top five most expensive place to travel and live in as well. And, you know, I lived there throughout the summer and buying groceries, things were very close to similar prices in Canada, which I don't know if that just speaks to how much prices have gone up in Canada. But all of these things are relative uh, with with regards to the language too as well. But I'm very curious, Utley, for your perspective on these sorts of things and Maybe when you, as someone living and growing up in Iceland, started to learn English and and uh, what your perspective on our language is. That's, um, yeah, one of um, my interests is language, indeed. It's, um, it's something I kind of, um, I guess... I got a very early start with English. It, um, I think now typically... Um, in the Icelandic school system, children start learning English at the age of eight. But in general, in modern Iceland, kids grow up with YouTube and um, un, uh, undubbed cartoons and uh, television material. So <clears throat> children really do start learning English from the get-go. 
just through well exposure mostly but um and spouting it off before they understand it sometimes too which is can be quite funny yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right and um well when i was in elementary school my class started learning english very early because we had to fill up some gaps in the um in the curriculum for some reason that's at least the way i remember it so they kind of said okay well why don't we just start teaching them english it's becoming so important for icelanders anyways and in the last i guess decade it's become um like I tend to say, and I don't actually know if this is just my experience or if it's fact that most young, almost all young Icelanders will be able to have a conversation with you in English and at least do their jobs in English, which is of course important because of uh, all the tourists that need service in Iceland. For me, um, English was certainly something that... Um, came quite early on in my life, especially because my mother did her master's degree in London. So when I was, I think, 10 or 9, we moved to London and lived there. And then I was just thrown into an English elementary school for one year and, yeah, just had to um, uh, speak English to everybody. Kind of following that, coming back home to Iceland, we... Um, we start learning Danish when we're like 12 or 13, I think, which is something that is, <laughs> that is, well, it's pretty debated in Iceland whether we should be <laughs> forcing children to learn Danish or not. And one of the best um, mm. alternatives would be to offer them, um, offer them to choose between Danish, Norwegian and Swedish because that's kind of the key point to teach Icelandic kids another Nordic language so we can communicate with this whole Nordic community around us. Right. Well, anyways, Danish was kind of, a lot of people really disliked it. And it was uh, the, the kind of classroom was disruptive and the children were protesting <laughs> having to learn Danish. Uh, but I just kind of uh, <laughs> sat back and just did my mm. work and handed it in <laughs> so um anyways at the end of my obligatory education i had like kind of well i had a grasp of writing and reading danish but understanding and speaking wasn't it's just so difficult to learn and i'd say almost impossible without constant exposure for months so anyways i decided to go to um go study in denmark and that was kind of just I wanted to um, try living abroad and expanding outside of Iceland and also to get a proper grasp on the Danish language, seeing as I had done these years of schooling in it, like, why not just mm. go ahead and finish it? <laughs> um, and also in high school in Iceland, we choose between French, Spanish and German as a, I guess, third language. And I chose German, so I know how to say a few sentences. But um, I always think that's pretty fun. Anyways, language is great. It's um, really good to know, a lot of fun to think about, and to like kind of see the different connections between languages, German, 
English and Danish, they have like words that they have some words in common. Well, I guess English, not that much, but German and Danish. But you still, you still get a lot. I say that you get a lot for free as a native English speaker when you're learning either Icelandic or German because there are so many cognates. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, house, yeah. uh, that one is like essentially the same in all three languages, right? But then there are also, of course, the infamous false friends that you have to really watch out for. But I mean, as a native English speaker learning either of those languages, you're, you have a head start compared to someone whose native language is completely unlike, you know, not, not a Western European, um, Western Germanic language. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think I remember talking to you about this, Julie, when we had met in Banff. Um, but I've told this to many people because I've really been thinking about my sort of status as someone who is a native English speaker and never having had to, and I've you know grown up in Canada and anyone who lives in Canada or even the US uh, would likely know this as well, that you know it's only a small part of Canada that is speaking French. Uh, the rest is still bilingual and everything we get in the store, all of the food and everything is written both in English and French. But yeah. unless you're living in or around Quebec, you're just not Quebec, focused yeah. on the French at all. No, um, no, no. no, not at all. <laughs> I just had a refresher of what that's like. But compared to my first experience there, actually, my first time there it was 2017, I think. My husband actually went to college in Montreal for a few years back in the day. So um, we went there together several years back. And I, re- I remember, you know, a couple places where they just, mm. I, I don't know if they literally couldn't or they just would not speak English with me and they didn't have an English menu. And um, this time I didn't didn't encounter yeah. that so much. It wasn't, wasn't an issue, but it is such an interesting mm. thing to me as an American to, uh-huh. you know, to just cross out, you cross over the border from Vermont or from Ontario into Quebec. And it's just like, what's happening i can't read anything <laughs> it's quite the experience yeah and i i've experienced some people uh, with a you know non north american perspective and you introduce yourself as canadian and they think that you learn that you're Canadian. all bilingual yeah and maybe this is skewed like if you watch the united nations or something or any sort of global politics yeah. canadian politicians will do like half their speech in english and half in french so that probably gives the wrong impression <laughs> that we're all that way yeah, yeah, but I, I have to say, I, I that was one thing that I found really interesting um, about the Snorri program. Of course, it's it's pitched as cultural exchange between North Americans and Icelanders, which it very much is. But for me, I personally, even though I come from a state like a border state, um, I had spent virtually no time in Canada or around Canadians before my Snorri experience, and so to me, this is also one of the really interesting parts of the Snowy program that I think is sometimes kind of overlooked. Um, and of course, there are some participants who will have spent a lot of time in, in you know, the other North American country, maybe. Um, but for me, like I said, it, my exposure to, to Canada and Canadians is very limited. And so that was like, I was not only getting exposed to Icelandic culture and language, but also to Canadian culture and language, because um, let us not be mistaken. We both speak English, but there are some language differences for sure. And I learned a lot of interesting Canadianisms from my um, 
from my Canadian snorries. We were 16 my year and four Americans and 12 Canadians. So we were vastly outnumbered. And I, I learned a lot of uh, fun and interesting things about Canada and Canadian culture and Canadian English. So. Yeah, no, no. Thank you for saying that because that actually goes beyond just language, but geography as well. And I found this past summer in Hofsos and immersed in all the genealogy and this sort of history, I have never learned so much about, say, North Dakota or Minnesota and these different American states that I have spent time in the states growing up as well. But it was like the West Coast and California. And now I have this in, this connection, this interest in these other states. And not only an interest, but a connection, right? Like, and seeing, you know, I knew that my relatives, uh, ancestors had, you know, lived for a brief periods in North Dakota, but now actually understanding what that meant to them and what that experience would have been like during those settlement immigration uh, periods. So thank you, yeah, for bringing that up. I always like to touch on that, that these sorts of cultural connections, and right now we're maybe the best example of that, right? Canadian, American, Icelander, we're each representing these three different communities that the more we get intertwined with each other, it just spurs on a lot of interesting different dynamics but before we move on i want to just continue on this language bit a little bit longer and to ask for both of your perspectives on this idea that i've been working through and trying to think about quite rather seriously and this was not first my idea but going around iceland i would hear so much referenced that uh, especially from the older generations including the president uh when we met with him, uh, mentioning that uh, Icelandic is seemingly at risk of not necessarily, I don't think anyone necessarily believes Icelandic as a language will be lost like entirely. There certainly are endangered languages in the world, uh, but it's uh, definitely not Icelandic. You know, there's maybe some, you know, small communities of people that are speaking these older languages in parts of the world. But a lot of older folks emphasize that like Utley was mentioning, kids are learning English at more and more of a young age in Iceland. And I think, well, I would like to know what you guys think before I move on with the next part of my hypothesis. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we talked about it quite a bit in my university courses, but I, I think I, I'm curious to hear from Utley first being the Icelander and also being uh, a bit younger than me. I'm curious um, what I want to hear his his perspective yeah, first. Um, that's a actually really good question and point you bring up. And I think probably the funniest thing is I had completely forgotten about this um, conversation and this kind of being an issue. Uh, I we certainly did talk about this in school and stuff, and it's being talked about. Yeah, in the um, in Icelandic society, but um, yeah, I guess I had just forgotten that Icelandic was at risk. Um, I, I guess in my experience, I, um, I speak Icelandic with everybody that speaks Icelandic. And also if someone is learning Icelandic, I, I, uh, 
try to speak Icelandic with them. But um, I think that probably comes a lot, though, from you knowing what it's like to be on the other side of that equation. You know, you, as you said, you've learned multiple second, you know, foreign languages. And so you understand the importance of having native speakers interact with you and the frustration, presumably, of when they don't. Um, I've found that that is something that that doesn't. Yeah, there, there needs to be a bit more awareness of in Iceland. And I think that is happening more and more and more. That's okay. Um, actually, Jack, would you tell us more about... Um, My hypothesis. Guess, yeah, or the case, I guess, the case for Icelandic being, I don't know, less important, dying out, going extinct? Yeah, so but let me preface this uh, thought I was... Uh, trying to bring up earlier when I was talking about being a native English speaker and the French-Canadian uh, different dynamics, but certainly English is so prevalent in the world. And it's kind of weird to say if it's the most dominant language, because then there's always the bit if you're going on population numbers, right, Chinese, more uh, physically more speakers. But then there's the a concept of, you know, Hollywood and just how that reaches all around the world, people watching movies in English or music in English. And then I've heard it explained as English is the native language to the internet, right? A lot of coding, literally like the foundations that the internet is built upon. A lot of that is built on English language. So I feel privileged to know English, uh, but then that's a privilege that goes to, as I spent all summer in Iceland and everyone is so easily able to switch to English with me, because this language is so prevalent and so dominant, I never really have the necessity to learn other languages, right? I can seemingly get by and I haven't traveled all around the world, but it seems like even when you are going to the more and more obscure places, English still has a little bit of value. It's quite a universal language. And I know there's tremendous limitations still with it. So from my perspective, um, I'm thinking about the future of language and, uh, Okay, so mentioning the internet and technology as well, right? That also really has to come into the picture. So as you were saying, Utley, young kids are watching videos and movies and everything's in English. And, you know, even more so now, it's all like the TikTok and social media stuff that is in English and that young kids are learning even before they're going to school. So technology and how we interact with technology has a big component on how we learn language and what languages we use. So I have come to the conclusion that I think Icelandic is at risk, but not in the way that these people are referencing. I don't think it's a risk that everyone just ends up speaking English and Icelandic and Icelandic gets lost or it just becomes this sort of kind of like how Old Norse is now, right? People will maybe learn Old Norse to read uh, old stories or old poetry, but no one really speaks in Old Norse. I don't think that's going to be the dynamic with Icelandic. I think as we look to the future of technology and all of these different things, I think it's actually going to be an explosion of languages. 
I don't think it's going to be a homogenization where it's only English and only Chinese spoken all over the world. I actually think there's going to be an explosion of languages. So in that sense, Icelandic would be at risk not of being lost, but being competed with every single other languages and the generation of new languages. And uh, I'm thinking this through like with technologies that we'll be able to, you know, put ear pieces in our ear and there will be translation in real time. So you could be speaking absolutely any language and you can generate and create a new language within a year. And if that gets uploaded into this technology, that could be translated as well. That's kind of how I think the future of language is going to become. And I've come to this realization just thinking this through quite deeply over the last you know, few months or so. So that's kind of my hypothesis. I could go into it more, but I don't want to make this all about that idea. So I could get both of your thoughts on this, and then we can move on to another uh, topic of our conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, it was a topic that we talked a lot about in my programs. Um, of course, Icelandic as a second language and then in translation, um, a big topic in both of those programs, of course. Um, and I'm also in some Facebook groups where they're very active, uh, lively, sometimes dramatic conversations about um, kind of the state of English versus Icelandic in Iceland. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, like I hear so many accounts of young people in Iceland, and I think that means all the way from grade school kids to, you know, teenagers and young adults, um, conversing with each other in English and like, quote unquote, refusing to use Icelandic or something. Um, and thinking that for whatever, you know, for whatever reason, English is cooler or I don't know, whatever. Um, and yeah, it's the TikTok, I tell you. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that is social media. A lot of that is gaming from what I understand, you know, computer games. But mm -hmm. I, yes. I mean, I think when you talk about a language being at risk, there's a spectrum, right? There's a very big spectrum. Like you said, you have you have certain like indigenous languages from many places all over the world that literally have like 10 speakers left. That's obviously right. yes, yes. a much higher level of risk than where Icelandic is right now. You know? So when people say it's at risk, like is there cause for concern and for being vigilant? Yes. Is it going to die out in the next like two generations? Absolutely not. I mean, Icelandic is still the language of Iceland. You still cannot really fully um, understand and adapt to society there and to the culture without knowing the language. Um, it's much easier to navigate life in English there than it is compared to, for instance, here in Germany. Um, here in Germany, for instance, if you go to like the immigration office, they are literally not allowed to speak anything but German with you. In in Iceland at Utlandingastopnun, the Directorate of Immigration, they will they it's sometimes hard to get them to speak Icelandic with you, even if you're more or less fluent. Um, but I think just one point that I want to make about about this is what Icelandic are we talking about being at risk? Because if we're talking about, you know, like our, say our grandparents Icelandic, then yes, it's at risk, just like 
our grandparents any language is at risk because language is constantly evolving and changing and one of the things that iceland uh, that icelanders have to reckon with is that there will inevitably be some there is already some amount of change because of the number the increasing number of, of people of foreign origin living in iceland and making iceland their home and making icelandic their language and um people like me i've you know i've studied it for years i speak more or less fluently a little rusty after being in germany for a while but um my icelandic is not like atli's icelandic and it never will be and we have to get to a point where that's okay and that's um that's understood and and i think that that is yeah that's just a really big point when we're talking about the future of icelandic the future of icelandic i think is very bright but it's also it looks different than you know quote the good old days of of icelandic you know what i mean there's this whole harkening back to to an era that was supposedly when everything was supposedly better and um we just need to look forward to what it is going to look like and one other positive thing i would say is that there's a lot of money and time and effort being put into researching right now in terms of um making sure that um you know like all of the technology is compatible with icelandic and um even there i don't know if it's ongoing or if it's over now but there has been a study ongoing where they're asking people who speak icelandic as a foreign language to record sentences so that these um devices will also be able to understand icelandic with various accents um and as a native english speaker you know uh, jack you can you probably have the same experience i especially now you know having lived abroad almost 10 years i talk to more people who speak english as a second language than i do who are native english speakers and i am totally used to hearing all kinds of english different vocabulary quote unquote incorrect grammar accents whatever and i mean we are outnumbered you and i as native english speakers are outnumbered by people like atli who speak as uh, speak english as a second language and so we're so used to that Icelanders are are just starting really to get more used to that and I think that that's like a huge point when you talk about the this idea of it being at risk um they just have to there needs to be a bit more understanding of of that Icelandic will change mm. and that that's okay but it will still be there Yeah wow that's all very actually really quite insightful Yeah yeah I think that is relevant more to the here and now my kind of conceptualization of language is thinking more like when i'm in my 80s or 90s what it's going to be like and that's more on like the progress of technology right so when my avi who is now 98 years old and just you know called my mom the other day for her birthday and he saying her happy birthday and left this message to her this is all in technology that was unfathomable to him when he was my age 25 years old he could not imagine being able to sing happy birthday to someone and now she like has it saved on her phone and can play it and not only that but we could like edit it or something so when i'm thinking about language when i'm his age but just other technologies the world's going to be really quite different but the things that you were saying right now in the here and now dealing with other people learning icelandic and speaking it with an american accent or something like that is just a new dynamic that that's a really good point that you say you know yeah all the people that i speak to everyone speaks english a little bit differently and i'm not you know that's just you navigate that it's second nature 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. totally used to that. But I, I mean, I don't know. I guess my feeling is we already have technology and we will continue having technology that makes it easier to communicate with people who, you know, where you don't have a common fluent language. Like my my husband, for instance, his um, paternal grandparents are Polish and my husband did not grow up speaking Polish. So he literally cannot directly communicate with his grandparents. He's always had to have his dad or uncle translate for him, interpret for him. Um, but when we visited them a couple of years ago, he used like the Google Translate, you know, voice translation app and it worked really well. Um, so I think that those things will continue to be useful in, you know, of course, and certainly when you're traveling now, you can just hold up your phone and it'll translate the menu right before your eyes. That's amazing. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that's going to deter people from wanting to, you know, really dig in and learn a language fluently. I think it might actually have the opposite effect because it will give them more exposure, more interest to it. At least I hope that it might, you know, because you're not going to have that person to person connection if you're not really digging in and learning it rather than just having, you know, your technology. No, no, I think that's exactly my point is that this sort of thing is not going to lead to a homogenization of language. I mm-hmm. think it's going to lead to an explosion of language. So I think yeah. more people will have yeah. the freedom to choose like, Hey, maybe I want to learn Icelandic and you're someone living in India, for example, and you just think that'd be a cool language to learn, but you could have the resources and the technology to do so. And it would be made easy. So I think that's kind of the future of the language. So Well, yes, I hope you all have enjoyed this episode of the podcast. This has been part one. If you would like to listen to part two, uh, it'll be released one week after this episode and accessible on the Icelandic Roots podcast. Whether you are listening on Apple or Spotify or Google, you should be able to find part two listed right after this episode. I would also like to say we very much appreciate if you could rate and review this podcast. You can leave a review and a rating on most of the main uh, podcast apps, and that helps this show to reach a larger audience and bring this Icelandic community uh, more to the world. So we appreciate all of your support. And if you have any other comments or feedback, you can reach out to us at Icelandic Roots on social media. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy part two.